0: I always hesitate to say this because I don't want to do the thing that women often do of belittling my achievements, but I truly believe that this book was written by the ancestors and if I didn't write it, it would have come through someone else. So when we talk about how I came up with the ideas, how I structured the book and everything, I almost feel a bit guilty because it just came so easily. <laughs> it's like the ancestors were like, this, this is what you need to do, just do it. Then I just tried to really surrender. <laughs> because even when you know that spirit is moving through you, of course, there's still yourself and your ego trying to perfect everything and all of that. So I had to kind of go through a deeper level of surrendering to what the ancestors wanted to write. Prophecies
1: have foretold, and wisdom keepers all know, that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world.
2: In this podcast, we are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh.
1: And I'm Shana Connors. With humble hearts and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten.
2: Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Hey, hey, beautiful. Have you heard of Moon School? It's our 29-day lunar makeover. Moon School is a self-led daily practice that helps us get into the rhythm of reconnecting with ourselves and reestablishing a daily practice or shaking up our daily practice. And the fact that it is so easy and also truly profound is what makes it so cool. It's a 15-minute meditation with a journaling prompt every day each meditation is different. It's a meditation that isn't just about stilling your mind and breathing. While it has that in it, it also takes you on a journey to help you align with the face of the moon. So as the moon grows from new to full and back to new again, we guide you on a transformational journey of reconnecting with essential parts of your nature to awaken, to clarify, to renew you. It helps you connect with your feminine rhythms, living in alignment with the moon. So with that said, enrollment is open right now. We begin on June 17th. All right. Thank you for listening and back to the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode
1: of the Time of the Feminine podcast. I'm feeling really happy today to be sitting here with this guest who I got to experience speaking a passage of her book during Yaya Louisa Tisha's 75th birthday party. Her name is Araba Ofori Akwa, and she is a healer, DJ, cultural curator, and award-winning writer who practices and teaches an African-centered approach to wellness. Her journey to becoming a healer began with herself, through experiencing firsthand the power of talking therapies, mind and body practices, and meditation. Inspired to create safe spaces for other Black people, Araba studied different healing modalities, including a 200-hour yoga teacher training in India, an NHS-accredited well-being coach qualification, and the study of advanced pranic healing in Ghana. Her debut book, Return to Source, Unlock the Power of African-Centered Wellness was published by Hay House and is now available to order. And I have a copy here and I highly, highly recommend this book. And so it's such an honor to be with you today. Welcome, welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. It's so good to have you here.
0: Thank you so much. And that was such a lovely introduction. It still feels so strange that other people are reading my book because I worked on it in private for so long and visualized it being out in the world for so long. And it's only been published for about two months. So it's still kind of surreal to hear people talking about it and, you know, to have people saying like, I'm reading your book or I recommend your book but it's really beautiful to hear. So thank you.
1: Oh, it's so good that you created this. And I can't imagine, I want to talk to you all about the journey of what it was like to actually write a book and Mm -hmm. consolidate. Cause this book, I'm telling you from my experience of reading it is a wealth of knowledge. And so I'm so curious about how it was curated, how you decided what was going to be put in the book and what was going to be left out Mm -hmm. because From like reading the nature chapter, I was like, whoa, and like about the herbs and all the healing modalities and there's so much. And so
0: congratulations. (laughs) Thank Mm -hmm. you. Yeah. When I finished writing it, actually, I was like, wow, maybe I could do a master's because I feel like that's basically what I just did with this book, with the amount of research and yeah. It's a big book. It's a big book in every sense of the word. And I feel so grateful to have been trusted by the ancestors to bring this book into the physical world.
1: And I think that's a huge point because we were talking about this before the podcast. And I was expressing how there was part of me that felt sad that so much of this knowledge has been lost for so long that So many of us have been disconnected from the roots of our origins and the healing modalities and really this connection to source, but also how beautiful it is that so many people are becoming the remembers of this ancient wisdom and getting to carry on the torch of the ancestors and bring this back to consciousness.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's even a point in the book where I say something similar that when we experience this degradation of ancient knowledge it is really sad it's very sad for those who don't even know what they're missing it's mm-hmm. sad for those of us who are searching but struggle to find but the benefit of that degradation happening is that it always causes a number of beings to step into their role as keepers of the culture, as preservers of the knowledge. And so it's quite interesting in that if there wasn't the degradation and the demonization, we might even be more lost (laughs) because Mm -hmm. if the traditions stayed around, but kind of got a bit watered down, you kind of enter into a sense of, I guess, complacency where you think you know everything because the tradition is still going. So you don't think there's any deeper to go because let's say it's a a holiday or something, a holiday festival that happens every year. You don't necessarily think you need to look deeper because, hey, I've been celebrating this every year with my family. I know what it's all about. And you don't realize that what you're celebrating now is maybe a commercialized or a sanitized version of what your ancestors celebrated. But when you find yourself in a position where you didn't even know about the festival until you started digging into your heritage and your history. That's when I feel you tend to find more, what's the word I'm trying to look for? more authentic, more authentic information relating to that tradition. Even though you have to search harder and you have to kind of go off the beaten path, I think that what you find tends to be a more preserved version because it's not watered down and continued. So it's Mm -hmm. definitely bittersweet. (laughs) Yes.
1: It's an interesting thing that you're sharing about, in a way you're saying that it's causing us to look deeper and to search deeper. And I think that's what a lot of people are experiencing. You know, I live in the United States and I see it a lot because so much of our cultures and our ancestry has been mixed and also mm. watered down and lost. Yeah. my family on my dad's side has jewish I have Jewish roots from Eastern Europe. Mm. And so a lot of those traditions were lost, and even my last name is Connor's, but it was Cohen. And during the war, they changed it because of the anti-Semitism that was happening at the time. And across peoples in the United States, like there's been so much transitioning into or normalizing, I guess, let's quote unquote, normalizing, like trying to make something that it doesn't offend people that, you know, protects you. And Mm -hmm. because of that, on both sides of my family, so much of my roots have been lost. And so can you share from your experience, like the journey that you went on of reclamation, like perhaps any moments that stood out as like, this is something I have to do. I have to go deeper. You talk about it a little bit in your book, but I'd love to hear Mm -hmm. some of the story of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think for me, my journey to reconnecting with my roots is really intertwined with my mental health journey. So in my early to mid twenties, I was really struggling with my mental health specifically depression and anxiety. And to cut a long story short, (laughs) I eventually finally found my way to therapy after years of resisting, which I think, yeah, I also talk about this in the book. From communities of color, therapy and mental illness is something that isn't much talked about or accepted or seen as part of our life. It's a thing that Mental illness is a thing that affects rich white people and therefore therapy is a thing that rich white people do. And that's pretty much it. Because of all of those kind of misconceptions and the actual cost of therapy, which is a real barrier itself, it took me a while to get the therapy that I needed. But once I did, my journey to healing in terms of depression and anxiety Ended up being really closely attached to identity, which going into therapy, I wouldn't have been able to guess was what I was going to talk about. So I did a lot of identity work um, and also a lot of work around understanding why I had disowned this part of myself, my Ghanaian heritage. And it did have to do, of course, with things like assimilating, which you mentioned earlier. But it also had to do with a few childhood years that I spent in Ghana and some of the negative things I experienced, which I then associated with Ghana, the country. And then also the loss of my grandma, who was really, for me, my whole Ghana experience. And when I lost her, I didn't grieve. I later found out in therapy, I didn't grieve at all. I just kind of blocked it out, which then also meant blocking out Ghana, which then also meant blocking out my heritage, which then also meant blocking out my ancestors. So doing um, the work in therapy to undo all of these things, identity misconception, finally grieving for my loss, undoing these lies I had created about Ghana to keep it at arm's length. All of these things basically led me to a place where I wanted to reconnect with my culture. And so doing that, it's the normal kind of thing. Okay, I want to go visit Ghana. I want to try and connect with my ancestors, all of that kind of thing. But because it was happening at the same time as my mental health journey, which kind of turned into a spirituality journey, I got to a juncture where... I had just come back from yoga teacher training in India, and I was there for a month, and that whole month was just like one big message to go to Ghana. (laughs) Everything was reminding me of Ghana. I was like, wow, that looks like Ghana. Hey, we have this in Ghana. And conversations with people and visions in my meditation, everything was telling me to go to Ghana. I got back to the UK. And I was thinking about further study. I was thinking, Oh, I'd love to go back to India and study more about Ayurveda, their traditional medicine system. And at that point, this voice in my head was like, why would you go to India to learn that when your ancestors had their own way of doing these things? And it was at that point that I realized that my spiritual journey and my journey back to my heritage had until then been separate tracks that were just happening at the same time. And that's when I realized it was time to try and bring them together as one because they didn't need to be separate. So that was a big turning point for me. It also was the beginning of a long search Mm. (laughs) because, as I'm sure you're aware, when it comes to wellness and spiritual information, there's a bias towards certain parts. There's a lot of Eastern philosophy through a Western lens, let me specify. There is increasingly a little bit more coming out about Native American cosmology and teachings, but again, always through a Western lens. But there's hardly anything on African knowledge. And this was very frustrating to me in my search, but it also... The reason that I felt that everything I learned, I then had to share because I knew how difficult it was for me to find all of this information and I couldn't be the only Black person looking for this information, right? So that journey is what ultimately led to me writing this book. But at that moment where I had that voice asking me, like, why are you going to go to India? (laughs) That was a big, a big turning point for me.
1: You know... It's been fascinating for me to learn more about mental health because I think women experience three to four times more depression and anxiety than men. And I imagine Mm -hmm. that people of color too, it's like, you know, those of us that have been subjugated and subordinate, it's Mm -hmm. easy for us externally to feel disconnected from the truth of who we are. And these mental illnesses are really like a symptom of this disconnection with our soul which is spiritual.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's an interesting statistic about women being more likely to experience a mental illness. I do think also part of what comes into that is that men are less likely to seek help for, or masculine presenting people are less likely to seek help for mental illness because of these gender constructs we've come up with. But yeah, any kind of Oppression, any kind of othering has an impact on your mental health. So if you're a woman in this patriarchal society, if you're a member of the LGBTQ community, if you're a person of color, if you're an indigenous person living in America, all of these things are 100% going to have a negative impact on your mental health. And that's not to say you're definitely going to have mental illness. That's not what I mean at all. But rather what I mean is those are the same groups of people to feel almost like they're failing because they have poor mental health. Women, black people, these people feel like what right do I have to have depression? You know, I've got things to do (laughs) or like my life's not so bad. So it's really just a reminder that even simply existing, just trying to exist in this world can negatively impact your mental health. So if you are, for example, a Black woman with depression, you might think, oh, but I've got a job, I've got a family who loves me, you know, I have food on the table, I have no right to be depressed. And the fact is, poor mental health doesn't discriminate, but discrimination does lead to a higher likelihood of having poor mental health. So,
1: you know, in all of that, it's true that we have this society that hasn't been set up for us. So it's easy for us to not know who we are, to then feel disconnected from our soul. And you had one of these experiences and you went on this quest to really reclaim and reconnect yourself. And so Mm. after you went to India and we're having this realization about going to Ghana, how did this journey begin for you of Mm. going
0: back? So it started where everything starts, on the internet. (laughs) I went to do my internet research. I was like, okay, African wellness, African spirituality. And I didn't find what I was looking for. So I didn't find much. But the little that I did find was very much focused on one of two paths. It was either an African traditional religion, such as Ifa, the Yoruba religion, Or it was a very kind of African-American approach to black wellness, which was a vegan diet and ancient Egyptian teachings, which definitely both of those had value, but they weren't what I was looking for. So then I went to Glastonbury because it is described as the heart chakra of the world. It is a highly, highly spiritual town in the UK. It's this tiny, tiny place. And it's just such an interesting place because if you walk down the high street, you'll just find everything kind of new age and spiritual. Like it's either a crystal shop, a tarot reader, or it's that kind of place. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to find anything African, maybe I'll find it in Glastonbury. But the other thing about Glastonbury, just like, most places in the UK outside of London, Manchester and Birmingham, it's very white. So I spent a full day going into every single shop on the high street and asking, do you have anything on African spirituality? And I can't even remember how many shops I went into that day, but it literally took me the whole day. And I got offered one book on ancient Egypt, a deck of Oracle cards, themed on the goddess Isis, a very white-looking Isis in terms of the pictures as well. I think someone offered me some African carvings, which I was like, no, I have plenty of these. that's not what I'm looking for. I was about to go back to my hotel feeling completely dejected, and then, of course, the ancestors sent someone. I met this psychic called Mike. This very bubbly white man. And I at this point, I had never had a card reading actually in my life. I was still quite new to the woo-woo, the more woo-woo side of things. Um, and he offered me a card reading. I said, no, I'm good, thank you. And then continued walking down the high street, got to a dead end, turned around, came back. And through a shop window, I saw a tarot deck called the New Orleans Voodoo Tarot Deck. And it had pictures of black people on it. And it was the first thing I'd seen that whole day that had any black people on it. So I ran inside, picked it up. And who was there when I turned to my right? But Mike, the guy who had offered me reading. And so I explained to him, I've been looking for something on African spirituality all day. And he proceeds to tell me that his wife is African-American and he spent time in the South of America, learning from African-American healers and psychics. And he actually knows how to read cards, as in playing cards, the same way like that they do in the African-American tradition. Of course, I got my first card reading from Mike. And then he also gave me a list of books to buy, including Jambalaya by Yaya Tish. In fact, he has spent time with Yaya Tish as well. At this point, I had never heard of her. He gave me a card reading, he told me a little bit of what he knew about African American spirituality, he sent me on my way with these book recommendations, and yeah, it really started from there. I got to read Jambalaya, I read Opening to Spirit by Caroline Shola-Arewa, and I did some other research on the chemetic side of things. and. What I realized over time, this didn't all happen in like a few months, it took me a while. What I realized over time was that I really just needed to connect with my ancestors and then they would guide me the rest of the way. Instead of trying to find a system, instead of trying to find a framework, instead of trying to find the one book or the one spiritual path that was going to take me there, I just needed to do my own thing, connect with my ancestors and be guided. And once I started doing that, everything else started to fall into place.
1: I love that. It's so interesting, right? Because we can go on this giant search and we can find things, of course. But then at the end, it's like, you already know. You already know. Just connect. (laughs) Just remember. Just allow it to
0: be. Right. Like, you don't need to buy any more crystals. You don't need to go to any more sweat lodges or whatever it is. All of those things are great. But they cannot replace that connection that you get from it to be fair it's different for different traditions let me just say that not everyone not every tradition starts with connecting with your ancestors it might be more connecting with nature it might be more meditating and connecting with your intuition but for African spirituality and African wellness In my opinion, the first step is to connect with your ancestors and that will guide you where you need to go. Can you share more about what that process looked like for
1: you and connecting with your ancestors?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this is something I love talking about because I think it's one of the biggest things that scares people, people who are new to the path. And my thing is that you don't have to Set up an ancestor altar straight away. In fact, you don't have to set up an ancestor altar ever if that doesn't call to you. Connecting with your ancestors can quite simply be just talking to them. Just the same way you would pray to God or whoever. You just talk to your ancestors. That's it. Just tell them, I am trying to connect with you. I don't know what I'm doing, but this is me setting the intention. There's no perfection in spirituality. It's all about intention. So all you have to do is set that intention, speak to them. If you feel uncomfortable speaking to them, write them a letter. If that still doesn't work for you, um, just talk about them. Call your mom and ask her about her mom and her grandma. Just do some research. Just send some energy their way and that doesn't have to be something very spiritual for anyone who's uncomfortable with that it can literally just be talking about them learning about them writing a family tree it's all about setting that intention to create a relationship with your ancestors the same way you build a relationship with anyone else right you talk to them Mm -hmm. you learn about them get to know what they're like, what they like, what they don't like. So yeah, of course, ancestor altars can be really powerful, but I don't think it's the be-all and end-all of connecting with your ancestors. You can literally just speak to them and eventually they will start speaking back to you.
1: I love what you said about there's no perfection in spirituality. I think especially in the Western culture through the white lens. There's so much Mm. of this perfection mentality, which like, what even is that? Yeah, yeah,
0: so much. And it's so interesting. I'm sure I myself was falling into the same trap at a certain point. And I saw this phrase for it a couple of years back, spiritual materialism. And I think that's exactly what so many of us end up on the path of because I think the time it really hit me was when I was at a gong bath or something like that, a sound bath. And I was in a conversation with a couple of other people who I'd just met. And one of the women basically said something and the other woman was like, oh, well, that's how I used to think. But then I had my ego death. So now I'm above that. I was just like, what? Because that to me sounds a lot like arrogance. (laughs) That sounds a lot like ego, actually. That doesn't sound like ego death at all. And so it really got me thinking a lot of these milestones and achievement that we hold up on a pedestal in the Western wellness slash spiritual landscape. It's really just another way of positioning yourself above other people, which just, it's just very individualistic. It's very, very individualistic. And I think it's a very slippery slope, even when you start out with good intentions on your spiritual journey, if you get too caught up in that kind of thing, I think it can really lead you astray.
1: It's so Funny that we're talking about this because I was with my Buddhist friend yesterday, Jack. We've been friends since we were babies. And twice he's gifted me this book, Spiritual Materialism. And it's all about
0: this.
1: (laughs) And so I was talking about it yesterday, which I haven't talked about it in a while, but it's true what you're saying and what you're sharing about this like elevation above other. This is something like I've just processed this past weekend. I was feeling this part of me that somehow thinks I'm better Mm. because I have spirituality (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's like yeah what is that part you know and the what we're talking about this perfection like there somehow is a right way to relate with this force that exists all around us you know
0: exactly and it's also this idea that not just is there a right way to do it but if you're doing it the right way you also kind of almost have to tell everyone else because they don't know how to do it. So you have to have these markings that show other people that you're not like them. And it's really interesting because when you take out the spiritual words and whatever, and you just describe what's happening, it's just the same as every other part of our society. It's just the same capitalistic, patriarchal way of looking at things. That is all about individual glory at the expense of others and also often has a price tag with it. So usually it's basically middle-class white people who get to achieve that level of enlightenment, you know? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because I was feeling this part of the conversation when you were sharing before about how everything is through the white lens. Why? because there's a capitalistic model that allows for people to continue propagating information from other cultures to help yeah. you create a business or all these kinds of things. And that's been such an interesting study in global sisterhood. Cause it's like, how do we help people? How do we support women in this capitalistic yeah. world? Like, it's such an interesting dance of like, how do we do good while also being a part of the system, that is the thing that we're actually up against.
0: Right. And that's the thing is trying to figure out how to be in the system, do good in the system without becoming of the system, which is really difficult, (laughs) but it's the only way because there's also this school of thought that says we should all just completely reject the system and go live on a, commune somewhere completely cut off from the rest of the world and while that's a nice ideal that in itself is even a product of the system because there's only certain people who would actually be able to do that who would have the privilege to be able to do that right so it's a whole myth. <laughs> Right. I,
1: it's, I mean, it's amazing that we can have these conversations because I think this is really what's needed because it's like through my understanding, your understanding and someone else's understanding and all of us coming together with this new way of trying to perceive what's happening and what is possible to Mm. create that we can actually birth something new and different, you know?
0: Yeah definitely. And also
1: ancient. I'm sure also like nothing, it's all recycled. It's all coming around again somehow. Yeah. New, new, but the same. (laughs) So can you share more about like how you ended up structuring your book? So you went down to Ghana, you started connecting with your ancestors, like, how did this book start coming to you? Like, when did you realize you wanted to even create a book? Like, I know there was a lack of information, Mm. so it makes sense in hindsight, but what was that experience Mm. like in the moment of this is something I need to do?
0: Before I even got to the more spiritual side of my journey, when I was still in the mental health healing section, I read Louise Hay, You Can Heal Your Life. And for anyone who doesn't know, it's, Credited as being one of the first truly metaphysical books. I think it came out. I don't want to lie, but I think, I, I think in the eighties, maybe seventies, eighties, something like that. But just to give it a brief summary, it puts forward that you can heal any ailment with the use of positive affirmations. And then it has specific affirmations for different ailments. Now, when I got this book, I thought that was ridiculous. It didn't make any sense to me. I thought it was very unlikely. By the time I got to the end of the book, I was telling everyone I knew to read it. (laughs) It, It's such a powerful book and really seems to be the basis for what a lot of coaches and teachers teach now. So having enjoyed that book and gained benefit from that book, I started reading other Hay House books and consuming that other content. And again, I got a lot of benefit from a lot of it. I really learned a lot and Hay House has been pivotal in my personal growth journey. But at the time, there were also very few writers of color with Hay House. So I remember in, I think it was 2017, writing in my journal, I will write a Hay House book. At that time, I had no idea what the book would be. All I knew was that they needed some more Black author, and I really liked what they did. So I wanted to be one of those Black authors. So that's when the seed was planted to publish a book with Hay House. Now, in terms of this book, I always hesitate to say this because I don't want to do the thing that women often do of belittling my achievements, but I truly believe that this book was written by the ancestors and if I didn't write it, it would have come through someone else. So when we talk about how I came up with the ideas, how I structured the book and everything, I almost feel a bit guilty because it just came so easily. <laughs> it's like the ancestors were like, this, this is what you need to do. Just do it, you know? And that's not to say I didn't put work in and it wasn't hard because writing a book is hard. But it just flowed so easily, especially when I listen to other people talking about their books. or I read about the process of writing a book. I'm like, oh, it wasn't that hard for me. The three seeds of African wellness, which are in the book, started out as the four pillars of African wellness. I had separated music and movement. And that actually came about before I even started writing the book. That was a framework that I wanted to use in my retreats and in the ways that I coached people and just in my work in general. And then as I started to write the book, something felt off something felt not right. And for all the ease that I mentioned earlier, it got to a point where that ease wasn't there. And I felt like I was writing alone instead of with the ancestors. Then I just tried to really surrender. (laughs) Because even when you know that spirit is moving through you, of course, there's still yourself and your ego trying to perfect everything and all of that. So I had to kind of go through a deeper level of surrendering to what the ancestors wanted to write. And that's when I realized that music and movement were meant to be together. And so it wasn't four pillars, it was three seeds. But that was really the biggest tension <laughs> that I had in writing the book. Once I figured that out, everything just flowed and I just can't express enough how how this was written by the ancestors obviously if someone else had written it it would be in a different tone certain things would be different but I truly believe if I hadn't so many things if I hadn't pulled through my mental health journey if I hadn't followed the calling if I hadn't believed I could write this book if I hadn't I I did a mentoring program with Hay House maybe if I hadn't done that if I hadn't got my book deal I believe this book would exist maybe a few years later through someone else. And it wouldn't be the same book, but the knowledge, the key points of the knowledge would still be there. So for me, the most important thing in getting the structure, in getting the right content was understanding my role as a channel and surrendering to that and being grateful for that and just forcing myself to get out of the way and allow the words to flow. Okay, this is getting really juicy now.
1: <laughs>
0: I love this
1: and there's so many parts of this I want to respond to because I completely agree with you that these ideas like we want to take credit but they come mm. from another place.
0: Exactly. You know? And sorry, let me just quickly respond to that because it reminds me of the difference between traditional African storytelling and Western literature, like the classics, right? In traditional African storytelling, no one knows who wrote these stories. The stories belong to the community. So I can hear the same story told 10 different times in 10 different locations by 10 different storytellers. And the structure, the foundation of the story is the same, but the way they tell it might be different. But they would never say, this is my story. But it's a folktale that they're telling in their way. And when we come to the classics in Western literature, it's all oh, great writers. We had the classics, whether you're talking about Shakespeare or like however far back you want to go, it's always a classic written by a particular person. And I think that difference in literature because our traditional folk tales are literature, but they're oral literature. I think that difference in Western literature and African literature, it exemplifies that. And it's also one of the reasons that African literature has been so ignored, I suppose, Because during the colonial period and before, there was this idea that Africans had no literature because no one had written it down and put their name on it. You know, and it's just a completely different way of understanding knowledge and trying to put a level of ownership on knowledge and on stories, which we didn't create. No human can create a story without the divine, without spirit. So how can you? put your name on, even Mm -hmm. though I just put my name on my book, but you know what I mean?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, of course. Well, it's, it's interesting because somewhere along the way, the white culture, whatever we want to call it, lost the art of transmission, Mm -hmm. you know, that became less important and because the energetics became less important, spirit became less important. Everything became material. It only exists if I can see it, feel it, touch it, control it. (laughs) (gasps) <gasps> yeah. you know, and all the things I can't control are bad and I need to control them somehow, or I need to oppress them or like all these kinds of things. Oh, yeah. they it's don't just so exist. Interesting. Or they don't exist. They must not exist. You must be crazy. You exactly. Know, you must be a witch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating because I was telling you before, but I've been working with an indigenous tribe down in Brazil and their teachings are oral. You receive mm. through transmission but it's through the songs. And I each time that. you hear this song, you receive something different okay. it's, and you can write it down. Of course you can write it down. That's, it's funny. We've done classes now within the global sisterhood with my teacher, Kenema, and everybody's like, ah, I need the exact definition of the word. And right. And they're like, well, actually, we don't even have the definitions of these words. It's actually something yeah. you're supposed to feel.
0: <laughs> right. And you know what? That's it. That's an important point for anyone who is on this journey of reconnecting or returning to source is that we have to leave our western mindsets behind which is a really difficult thing to do because we're all so conditioned it doesn't matter where you live in the world where you grew up you're very much conditioned into a western mindset if you want to return to source one of the things you have to do is let go of that and that includes things like understanding that learning can be through, not just can be, should be through experience, not just through writing and reading the written word. It's also the understanding of community over individualism. So all of these seemingly small things, we have to try and undo as we go on this journey to return to source. And that's why it's also so uncomfortable, because it requires us to unlearn so much
1: Yeah, and to actually trust ourselves and this internal experience that there's actually something inside of us or beyond us, but also in us Mm -hmm. that communicates and that has wisdom. And exactly. Exactly. Well, what I love about your book is that you're giving, like, the way for people to actually practice to use the herbs. To live in a healthier way, but using the things of the ancestors, which is so powerful. Mm. Like I I was like highlighting that whole chapter about (laughs) the herbs and how to take care of yourself because it it applies to everybody.
0: You know. And
1: and you also share the medicines, but it also brought this feeling like deep in my heart of I also want to learn more from my ancestors and to connect Mm. more with my ancestors. And so it's just so
0: beautiful how this work does that. Thank you so much. I really I intended for this book to be, you know, in the title, in the subtitle, it says unlock the power. And I really, really intend for this book not to be a manual, but to be a key that unlocks certain doors in your mind that might have been closed before, that unlocks certain new ways of thinking. and it's not intended to be the kind of book that is, okay, now I must do everything in this book and follow it step by step and use it like a textbook. It's more intended to be like, wow, okay, let me start with this practice and see what that opens up. And then hopefully in doing that, that then leads you on a path elsewhere to, as you say, connect with your ancestors because they have so much to teach you. All of us, our ancestors have so much to teach us and they're literally just waiting. They're like in the ancestral realm, just like looking at us, living our lives and wondering like, when are they just gonna ask for help? We're just waiting to help them. When are they gonna ask? So yeah, I'm really glad to hear you say that.
1: Yeah, I'm amazed also. It makes a lot of sense to me that this book was channeled because when I read it, I feel magic. When I heard you speaking, I felt this like sense of something greater. And I was like, wow, she's a great writer. But now I see that it's you and a whole squad. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I didn't write alone. I don't do anything alone. That's (laughs) since going on this journey. That's one of my favorite things to remind myself. Like, I'm not alone. I'm never alone. I don't do anything alone. To even say... Or think that I'm doing anything alone is like an insult to my ancestors.
1: Yeah, I just want to take a moment for everyone who's listening to remind themselves that we're not alone. It's such a good reminder because there's so many times when life can feel so overwhelming and we're like feeling like it's alone. But that's just a concept of this modern culture that's just. It's not real. Absolutely, whenever alone. So, I want to ask you: Is this your first time channeling? Is this your first time you feel like you really like channeled something,
0: or was this yes. a process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. As far as I'm aware. Yeah, uh, you know, I think channeling is another one of those words that's like you know been so. Like, what is even the word? Just the modern wellness and spiritual industry has just put so much on it. In terms of writing, yes, this is definitely my first. Okay. (laughs) Like you probably journaled and stuff, right? Like you probably were. Yeah. And you know, I write fiction as well. And I write short nonfiction. And again, like I'm not alone. I don't write alone, but this is the first piece where it was like, this isn't even mine. That's the difference in feeling. Like sometimes if I'm writing a piece of fiction or if I'm writing a piece of nonfiction, it feels like my story, but I'm being guided in how to write it. This for a lot of parts is more like, this is the ancestor's story and they're allowing me to put my voice on it. So it definitely feels like the first piece of channeled writing in that sense. I think a lot of my life, (laughs) Just life things have been channeled, events that I've run and workshops that I've done. Again, some of them have had this feeling of, I didn't even think about the idea. The idea just dropped into my head and it was like, you need to do this wellness event now. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So yeah, it's a familiar feeling, but definitely this was the biggest project.
1: And for other people that are listening to this podcast that feel a connection to channeling, but are perhaps afraid of surrendering or of getting out of the way, do you have any words of wisdom to share?
0: Yes. First of all, there's no shame in being afraid or resistant because it is scary, especially again with our Western mindset, this idea of Surrendering yourself to who knows what feels very, on the one hand, you might feel silly because you're like, okay, is this really a thing that's going to work or am I just making this up? But on the other hand, you might feel scared because you're like, which spirit am I inviting into my body? Or you might flip between the two, right? That's totally normal. What I would say is to, actually for a moment just put channeling to the side and don't even think about that and just think about your intuition and your connection with the divine because those two things are what create space for channeling to happen so sometimes the idea of channeling can just feel too big or spiritual or whatever it is so instead just really focus on connecting to your intuition and following your intuition, even on seemingly silly things like, okay, I was meant to go to the library today, but something's telling me not to go. So I'm just going to work at home. Follow your intuition, keep following it and keep trusting it and keep trusting yourself. And then also work on your connection with the divine, whatever that means for you. There might be having an altar. It might be doing daily prayers. It might be meditation. Just focus on those two things and let the channeling almost start itself. You'll get to a point where you're trying to sleep and the words are just coming out and you're like, okay, no sleep. So you have to get your phone out or your notebook or whatever, and you have to write what's coming. That can be, in my opinion, a less scary and less intense way to start the process of channeling rather than what I actually did for a while a few years back was I'd open my laptop, I'd open a new word document and be like channeling (laughs) and then meditate and wait for the words to come. And that in itself creates this pressure and this uncertainty where you're like, okay, well, did I really channel that or was I was my subconscious forcing it because I decided I needed to channel in this moment. So yeah, I think just working on intuition and your connection with the divine and also knowing that channeling might not even be your purpose. If you want to channel because it sounds cool or because you've seen other people do it, it might be for you, but it might also not be for you and that's fine. So doing that, that double whammy of following your intuition, strengthening your intuition, and keeping your connection with the divine will potentially lead to channeling, but it will also potentially lead you completely elsewhere. But wherever it leads you is where you're supposed to go. Mm. So beautifully spoken. It's like what a beautiful world we
1: would have if we were all listening to our intuition and being guided to where we were supposed to go, what we were supposed to do, how we're supposed to serve. Mm. Life would be so easy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what your book is giving people. It's giving people that possibility of remembering Mm. how.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be hard. (laughs) You know. No, and you don't have to do it alone. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I think that's, if there's anything about this time that I find to be really good, it's this return, this return to source, it's this return to remembering the goodness that we have as human beings and connecting in that and yeah, and putting out beautiful pieces of work and creation that comes from such an elevated space. Thank you. So I would love for you to read a passage from your book. We're going to do this off
0: the cuff. We're just going to explore what opens. Hey, it's like in between two chapters. Which one will I go for? Okay, I'm going to read a little bit about sound healing. How does that sound? Sounds beautiful. Sound has been in existence since the dawn of our universe. So it's no wonder that it's a source of such awe, inspiration, and healing. Randall McLennan captures the universal significance of sound with this passage in his book, The Healing Forces of Music. Among many of the world's cosmologies, the universe began with a sound. For the Hopi people, this sound was a creating song. For the native peoples of Australia, the sound was caused by the beating of the original seas with a reed. The Ethiopians speak of a time when the first humans could only sing, but eventually forgot the melodies and had to revert to the speaking of words. While in the language of error, the word "low" means both to sing and to weave. In some African and indigenous cosmologies, the sound of the creation of the universe is the deep, forceful, echoing vibration of a drum. It's a sound that can be found elsewhere in nature too. The sound of a coconut falling to the ground or the sound of our own heartbeat. What is the sound of Africa if not the beat of a drum? Sound and specifically music, just like dance have been an ever-present force in the lives of african people building on this history while taking inspiration from modern sound healing we can isolate sound and music as a tool to promote well-being sound healing in its modern eastern inspired form has been shown to be hugely beneficial for our well-being a 2022 study published in the religions journal found that as well as decreasing tension and depression, the practice can increase spiritual well-being. So this style of music therapy may have a lot to offer us. But we must also challenge the notion that all healing has to be silent, slow, or passive. While the approach of overriding the body and transcending the mind as a path to wellness works for some and definitely has a lot to teach us all, We cannot deny the power of loud, joyful, and active healing, especially as, for Africans, it's in our blood, it's who we are. So revisiting the definition of sound healing, we can find it in many more places than in the vibrational field of a gong. We can find it in the process of learning to play our traditional instruments. We can find it in raising our voices in shouting, chanting, or song. We can find it in losing ourselves in feel-good music. We can find it in learning to DJ, that's me. Sound permeates every facet of our existence. So wherever we can find sound, we can find healing.
1: Thank you so much for that beautiful passage. It's so powerful and it reminds me of, this can be fun.
0: It's going to be fun. Exactly. That's exactly it, you know, because the very masculine, very intellectual, Western slash Eastern style of wellness has really been embedded. The silent meditation, the, you know, the study of the texts, all of those things are really important, but it's not the only way we need to. In my opinion, we need to experience through our bodies rather than trying to override our bodies. We need to dance. We need to eat foods that connects us to our culture. We need to have fun with friends. We need to like sing, not just like spiritual music, just sing music, sing music that makes you happy. It can be joyful and it should be joyful. Thank you so much for that reminder.
1: Because it's true. And then when we fill ourselves with these foods and these, oh my God, the drums and like this music and this beat of life, we remember who we are. You don't need to sit there and read a hundred books. You just don't. You can. Exactly. If you want to. Yeah. (laughs) If you must. (laughs) If you must, you can. So for our last question, I want to ask you if you were to speak on behalf of the Divine Mother herself, our Mother Earth, what she
0: have you say? Wow. That is such a powerful question. You know, <laughs> the answer that's coming up, I'm hesitating because I kind of don't <laughs> want to say it, but obviously I have to. Okay, so it kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier with spiritual materialism. We find ourselves at the moment in A point in time where humans have destroyed the planet, basically. (laughs) But there is this huge movement of people fighting against climate change and all of that, fighting against oil. And it's all very well and good. But we have to remember that when we say we're fighting to save the planet, often we're actually fighting to save humanity. The planet will be fine without us. In fact, the planet will probably be better without us if we're being a 100% honest. So that's not to say we shouldn't try and have conservation efforts and things like that. But it's this thing of being honest and being truthful with yourself about what it is you're fighting for. And not just that, but also interrogating how you fight for it and what's the best way. Because a lot of these movements, these climate change movements, are led by people from the Western world as if it's something new. But Indigenous people have been leading conservation efforts for literally thousands of years. So basically, my message from the Divine Mother is, Yes, of course. We want to treat the planet better. We want to make our way of life less imposing. But let's not fool ourselves that we're trying to save the planet. We're actually trying to save ourselves. In doing that, let us look to indigenous peoples. Let us look to the groups who are actually connected with nature and are actually listening to nature and asking mother nature how she wants us to do these conservation efforts and asking us how she wants us to modify our lives and asking us how she wants to, us to show up for her instead of going on this um, egoic, egoic activist mission to save the world by doing things or fighting for things that we don't know if that's actually what mother nature wants if we're not rooting it in indigenous knowledge. If we're just rooting it in Western thoughts, then it's disconnected already. So yeah, I think I'll stop there because I could talk about this for a long time, but that's what was coming up for me.
1: Thank you so much for being a breath of fresh air.
0: (laughs) Thank you. I know that's not what you're supposed to say. That was exactly what you were supposed to say.
1: (laughs) No, and I'm so connected with you on that too. I was talking about this yesterday. I have this conversation. I've been tripping out because it's like you're me. It's just the divine meaning itself. So there's just so much uh, serendipity. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And I feel so happy to have had you on the podcast and for everybody to hear the messages that you have to share. And yeah, I feel so inspired to support you in whatever way that I can and this book and just the wisdom that's coming through you. So, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. It's been really fun. And so, can you share with people uh, Return to Source, Unlock the Power of African Centered Wellness? You can get it through Hay House Publishing. Is there links and things that people should know?
0: Yes. You can get the book pretty much anywhere books are sold. So, you can find it on Amazon if you. Are against Amazon. <laughs> I understand. You can also get it from your local bookseller. Even if they don't have it in stock, they can order it in for you. But all the other usual places, Target, Barnes and Nobles, you can find it there. And also, if you go to my website, I've put a few links of different retailers there. My website is arabaoa.com. That's A-R-A-B-A-O-A dot com. Lots of (laughs) A's.
1: Ereba, it was so good to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Time of the Feminine Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Go ahead and buy her book. I highly recommend. You'll learn so much. I know I have. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. And see you next time. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Time of the Feminine podcast. It is such an honor every time to be able to host these conversations and to share the stories of the beautiful people we get the opportunity to interview. And so, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and leave us a review. You can do so on Apple Podcasts and write a nice note, or you can do so on Spotify by leaving stars. We so appreciate every single one of you that's taken the effort to go out and to share with others and with our community about how this podcast has touched you. It really means so much to us. And for us, this is a labor of love. And so thank you for giving
0: back in that way.